0: Hello and welcome to the Vasey View. This is my fortnightly podcast where I talk about all things tech and its impact on public policy. I like to go around the world and settle in different European countries to find out what their tech policies are. And I like to talk to companies that are changing the weather in tech and impacting on public policy. And I like to talk to individuals with interesting ideas and perspectives. On tech and how it impacts on public policy. This week, I'm delighted to have Will Page. Now, Will was the chief economist of Spotify. And one of the reasons we've got him on is obviously we couldn't get Daniel Eck. No, that's not true at all. Sloppy seconds. We've got Will on because he's going to publish a book on April Fool's Day, in fact. And it's called Tarzan economics. And I want to talk to him about this book, which I've read, which is absolutely fantastic and very, very stimulating. And it obviously uses what has happened with the music industry in terms of going digital, not only to have some great insights into the music industry, but also some great insights into how analog companies can pivot into digital. So welcome, Will. Thank you. Great to be here. Will, thanks so much for coming on. You sent me your book uh, in galley form as it were a couple of months ago and i read it right through it's uh, just for anyone who's worried about reading books although i bet a lot of this audience probably does audible books it's an incredibly easy read it's full of wonderful anecdotes and stories it's not a heavy economics textbook and it's full of incredible insights and this is what i said about the book this is actually a quote being used in the book's press release i love this book it's highly entertaining and full of brilliant factoids and nuggets The clincher for me is that Will agrees with everything I think. Not that he knows that, as he's never asked my opinion on anything. And it is true, actually. I do, because I had to deal with piracy when I was a minister. And one of the theses, obviously, in this book is that the music industry was being a bit like King Canute in trying to stop piracy instead of pivoting their business model to accommodate effectively what people were asking for through piracy. But let's first of all start what I think is a sort of selfish description. You describe yourself as a rockonomist, which is a great word. Tell me, Will, how you became a rockonomist and what is a rockonomist?
1: Okay, so between the years of 2002 and 2006, I spent my day job working for you guys, the government. So I was a government economist working a sort of treasury-style function back home in Edinburgh uh, under Gordon Brown, as we pronounce his name. Believing in evidence-based policymaking and avoiding the temptation for policy-based evidence-making. I'm sure you've heard that mantra many times. But I had a Batman lifestyle. By night, I was working for the magazine Straight No Chaser, which is Giles Peterson's publication on jazz, rap and soul. Working with Philadelphia Hip Hop X and doing anything I could to become an economist in the music business. There wasn't any maybe just jump to the end of the book. My message at the end of the book is don't wait for your job description, create your job description. And I was convinced back then with the music industry collapsing because of piracy that they needed an economist and I wanted to become the first. So I knocked on every door possible. None of them were opening. But in the summer of 2006, a chap called Adam Singer, who was the chief executive of the Performing Rights Society, that's songwriters and publishers in the UK, opened that door and allowed me to come in. And that's when I became the first and only economist, which we should keep this quiet from the competition markets authority, it makes me a monopoly in the music business. And I spent six years at the PRS working on things such as Radioheads and Rainbows, the long tail theory, explaining the value of music to government accountants, and then moved across to Spotify in the Olympic summer of 2012 and have been there ever since.
0: You're a visiting professor, I think, at the LSE now. So... Can I take a course in rockonomics?
1: (laughs) Well, I love lecturing. Uh, I I love nothing more than not just public speaking, but lecturing, getting to the audience that doesn't think they're going to understand this, but has to understand it. And as part of the Marshall Institute at the LSE, I've given several lectures, the MBA course. I've lectured across universities around the world, recently did the Los Angeles College of Music at some god awful hour in the morning and when the questions came in on this video conference lecture some some of the students were driving i found that quite weird <laughs> driving the car and asking the professor a questions so that's that's a typical california story that one but yeah and then hoping to continue that fellowship we will accept to join the european institute at the llc this year so keeping ties with the LSE extremely strong and that's something i really want to have is the world of academia the world of tech and the world of policy to try and triangulate those three points So there's more interaction. You've got all these great brains at each of these three corners of the triangle. How can we encourage more interaction there?
0: The reason you've written the book is because to keep mixing the metaphors as it were, the music industry was the canary in the coal mine. The music industry was the first one that was forced to do it as you alluded to earlier, because of the endemic uh, of piracy. So tell us a bit about the economics of the music industry, how that's changed from pressing vinyl records right through to cds to where we are now effectively where you have three or four streaming services dominating the music industry well there was a live music industry
1: before there was a recorded music industry that's an important point to consider there was creativity before there was copyright and i go in the book right to the origins of where this music copyright business began which was in paris in 1849 with the creation of satire the world's first ever Songwriter Collecting Society.
0: Well, I've got to say, I mean, the the wonderful thing about this book is the kind of stories that you you get out of it that you can regale people with at dinner parties. So let's just start <laughs> with that one because it's Ernest bourget and Ernest is sitting in a cafe and he's forced to drink expensive wine by the cafe owner because it's that time of night while listening to his own songs being played, and that makes him angry. So, given that the Scotland-France
1: game this weekend has been cancelled, we go from Paris to Edinburgh and we just imagine that you're in the grass market, you're, you're boozing heavily, you're on to round number 11 and the legs are getting a bit weary, and you go into a bar where there's a band playing and that pint of lager isn't just five Scottish pounds, which on the current exchange rate is the same as five English pounds, but they've jacked it up to 10. And you're like, why is this pint of lager so expensive? And the barman says because we have to pay for the band okay but that band is performing the song that i wrote and the barman says to you but the songwriter is the least of our concerns how would you ed vesey the songwriter half cut on scottish gassy lager feel in that pub in the grass market in edinburgh if your songs were being composed the band were being paid but you received no compensation you'd feel a wee bit short-changed. So to paraphrase this Parisian story from 1849, what Ed Vesey would then do is go to the Scottish court, after they finished with Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Hammond, of course, and say, I want a change in the law because I want the songwriter to be compensated for the songs that bring value to the pubs. And the law said, you're right. And he gives Ed Vesey that law and he forms a collecting society because it would be impractical for Ed Vesey to run around all the pubs of Scotland demanding money for his music. I mean, he does spend a lot of time running around pubs, but <laughs> this would be not drinking, but collecting money um, as well as spending it. He forms SASM and SASEM starts to establish musical copyright. And if you bring it back up to date, if a hairdresser in 2021 says, why on earth should I have to pay for music? The collecting society, SASEM, PRS, ASCAP in America, will say, well, try running a hair salon without music. And
0: it came, it, came, it came to the US in 1917. Yeah, I think there's a Supreme Court case. Yep. Uh, it took
1: a while to transfer to America, as most things do. But then America adopted it. And then you had the birth of ASCAP, again, another monopoly collecting society, which set up the collection for the exploitation of the performer right in America. That then, only in America would you have competition in these weird organizations with BMI starting up. That takes you right up to the present. But if that hair salon was to say, uh, I can't run a hair salon without music because it's bad for my business, then you've got the answer. If it's good for your business, then a the share of that good should go back to the composer of the works and not just that, the artist of the works too.
0: So let's get back on track. So copyright, keep on track with the economics of the music industry and how it evolved.
1: All right, let's hop, skip, jump from 1849 right up to the, the format change wars, you could say. We had vinyl going from the... 50s, 60s, 70s, cassettes, remember those, and CDs, then piracy, then downloads, then streaming. And I think the key thrust of the book is the music industry in June 1999 woke up to Napster.
0: Before then, it had been, they'd been going gangbusters. I mean, the margins on CDs, the margins on records,
1: excess 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 <laughs> taking helicopters to the private jet is the expression i always like it was printing money An anecdote that i use in the book and it's one of my favorites is back then in the roaring 90s record labels executives used to sell cds by the weight of pallet so i'm trading with ed Vasey. i've got a pallet of cds here ready how much are you going to give it for me what's the weight of it 30 kilos i'll give you this much what's on it doesn't matter shania twain it's all going to sell yeah. So they, they were so easy to make money. They would actually sell CDs by the weight of pallet. How much data <laughs> science, how much SQL or Google BigQuery is involved in a weight of pallet of CDs. That was the business. And you got to remember, whilst we can mock it, it is worth more then than it is now, and that's before you adjust for inflation. So... You have to be careful what we're mocking here, but that was the business for me back then. I, I, I quote the book, Kill Your Friends. I don't know if you've read that book, but uh, written by another Scotsman, John Niven, so I can actually do his Glasgow accent for you. And he has this great line where he says, what's the point in asking me, an A&R talent scout, what your favorite type of music is? What a stupid question to ask an A&R talent scout. It's like going up to an investment banker and saying, what's your favorite currency? <laughs> <laughs> Robson and Jerome, 7 million CDs sold, no talent. It didn't matter. So, I mean... Yeah. Let's remind ourselves just how excessive that period was. Then the thunderbolt hits, which is Napster. I'll quote Pete Jenner, who was A, an LSE professor, B, quit in 1967 to C, discover either drugs or Pink Floyd. Not sure which order, but was the first manager of Pink Floyd. I think he discovered the drugs first before deciding to manage Pink Floyd, but we'll see. And he often said that what happened with Napster was copyright stands for the right to copy. That's what the word is. What happens when you lose that right to copy? And what Napster did was it took that right to copy away. So it undermined the entire premise of the music industry. Overnight, instantly, people could get every Beatles song they wanted in one zip file downloaded from the Napster site. Nobody in business had experienced that level of disruption before. To see, the entire business model overturned. Hmm. And then from 1999 to 2001, what you've basically got is a two-decade story a 20-year head start in dealing with disruption. And the first 10 years, we made a complete dog's dinner of it. The second 10 years, we pivoted, to use that word, it's in the book title, and we've got to success. So what I like to try and do in the book is, with this 20-year head start in our first-to-suffer, first-to-recover journey through disruption, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, just about every other profession, government, public service included, is staring at their own Napster moment. So here's eight lessons I've managed to sort of tease out of it, which I think would help everyone else, journalists, lawyers, accountants, bankers, civil servants, deal with the same scale of disruption that we're now staring at.
0: Yeah, I, wanna, I'm gonna, I feel like I'm reining in a racehorse here because you're raring to go with the eight lessons, but I just want to <laughs> fit with the music just quickly because the interesting thing about digital, which I think will help us kind of pivot into the into the wider lessons, is that Streaming has helped the music industry because, first of all, it legitimizes what was illegal before, which was piracy. And there's an argument that says that actually, obviously, one doesn't condone piracy, it's illegal, but it is, you know, canary in the coal mine is, is one anecdote. But it's also the consumer saying, what do they want? Business has to wake up to that. But the second thing is it brings huge benefits, potentially. Data was one thing you mentioned, you know, weighing CDs by the kilo to actually knowing what people are listening to. And it also allows what is known as this kind of long tail effect. So once your CD is out of the record store, that's it. It's never out of the record store with streaming. So those are two kind of big changes in the economics of music, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. I mean,
0: the big one
1: for me, which made me think there's a book in this, if I go back to the Olympic summer of 2012 when I joined Spotify, was suddenly realizing what the data was telling us. A, we had a business that's recovering. That's great. Business suffer, business recover. But B, we had a business where we understood consumption. Very few businesses actually understand consumption. Let's take a quick example of something which I think we will start to see change as Tars and Economics kicks in. But if you look at the car manufacturing industry, clearly there's a public service debate about a car plant firm up in the northwest of England, which may close soon, partly because of Brexit even. What do we know about cars? We know how many were sold. Agreed. We can look at last quarter, the quarter before last quarter's car sales and make a judgment about what that means for policymakers. Demand for cars is up. But do we actually know how cars are used? Not really. We don't know whether there's more cars being sold, but less of those more cars are actually being used. We don't know if more cars are being sold and they're being used for commercial purposes as opposed to residential purposes. We know transactions, but we don't know consumption. And I think smart cars, we think about where Tesla is taking us, could change that. And what that does for public service is it takes a legacy effect of years, decades of car statistics about transactions and says, this is useless. I don't want to know how many cars were sold. I want to know how cars are being used. So the big revelation for me in music was, wow, we have a business that's recovering and we understand how it's being consumed. Nobody else gets that second part of the story. No one else understands consumption, we do.
0: Tell our audiences, I love the Starbucks anecdote as well, because that's another kind of data inflection point about how music is consumed.
1: It's interesting to think about how people assume the order of events, be it laying out a public policy, the consultation, the committee, the statutory instrument, the policy, be it how to promote a book, or we give it to some book reviewers, they review a book, and then we send gellies out for quotes how people get accustomed to how things work. And what I learned from the music industry is what happens if that established order of events just turns on its head? What happens if it works the other way around? So since the 1950s, what you would have is a model where you promote a song on radio. We can go into the the, the murky details of how you might want to promote that song on radio in a minute. But then because it gets promotion on radio, it's stimulation to create sales in the record shop quite easy we have radio pluggers which promote radio we work the song radio for two weeks before the release and we drop it into the shops and everyone buys it and everyone gets used to that and it's inertia you know it's like looking at the keyboard in front of me qwerty q-w-e-r-t-y we're always using an inefficient layout of the keyboard our children our grandchildren will look at an inefficient layout of the keyboard because we always do what we've always done that same order of events so the starbucks story is just an incredible one and there's one of many but to kind of hot skip, i jump our way through it, but it was the artist Megan Trainor who in the UK reached a chart position. She reached a top 40 without actually being on sale. Long story short, she was only available in streaming services. Streaming was beginning to affect chart position for the first time in history. And she went to inside the top 40 thanks to her streams. Then I looked at the British and American data and I realized that she was working on streaming before she was beginning to work on sales. And long before she actually got played on radio. So wait a second. There's no radio play promoting this artist. The artist's song, by the way, was called All About That Bass, a wonderful throwback. 50s oh, yes. song. So catchy in its throwback song written style that you feel like you already know it as soon as you hear it. And this is important for the story because it's a song which makes you feel familiarity. I've heard that type of music before, but you don't quite know who this artist is and what the song is. So then I got my hands on Shazam data. Now Shazam, for those who don't know, is an app on the phone where you can tag a song that you hear on the radio and quickly find out who it is and then add it to your streaming collection or go and buy it in the shops. That's the traditional story of Shazam. Radio first, Shazam second, Shops third, streaming fourth. That's what we were used to. But what I noticed here was Shazam first, streaming second, sales third, and radio a distant fourth at the very, very end of the food chain. Great. I've got an amazing story of how the order of events has changed, presented at this huge BBC music event. And for the next year was called with questions of great presentation, great case study, Will. But where were the Suzanne tags coming from yeah. if there was no radio? Let's remember, the order of events exactly. has completely turned. So then a colleague of mine, Emily French Blake, a real street smart within Spotify, a wonderful woman. I really admire her. I'd love to work for her in the future. She, a year later, had come back from Seattle where she'd been working with Starbucks. And we were both working late into the night. She was chasing time zones in a different part of the world. She said, Paige, come here, I've got to show you something. And she'd been taking notes from the presentation she'd seen in Seattle with Starbucks. And they were obsessed about my Meghan Trainor case study. And the point she made to me was, if you think about what Starbucks is, let's use the language of a means to an end, they're the biggest radio station in America. 20, 30, 40 million Americans queue up, order, wait, and slurp what I think is awful coffee on a daily basis. Which is like
0: four times bigger than the biggest radio station in America. Absolutely. And whilst they're queuing,
1: ordering, waiting, and slurping their morning joe, they're listening to music. A traditional mindset might say... (laughs) It's not a radio station, though, what you're on about. What Tarzan Economics encourages us to think about is a means to an end. If you want to draw a crowd, crowds can be drawn from wherever and whenever possible. And if they're queuing in Starbucks up and down the country, that's a crowd.
0: I just love that story because I just love the, I love that kind of thinking. I love the fact, thinking about Starbucks as a radio station. I love about thinking about, you know, you look at something at the front and it's this, it's a coffee shop, but actually... Do a bit of lateral thinking and it's something completely different. And there must be so many other examples of that which would give you tremendous business opportunities if you stop thinking about something as being conventionally this, but actually it could be this as well. But anyway.
1: And I, just, if I can quickly tie that one up for you. Going back to Shazam data, I'm not sure if I actually mentioned this in the book, but I should flag it here. The time of day analytics, again, not just consumption analytics, but time of day for those tags of Megan Trainer on Shazam, We're all between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. in the morning across all the respective four time zones in the
0: United States of America. Bingo. There you have it. (laughs) I could do the entire podcast about Starbucks as a radio station. I mentioned the long tail. I mean, so the other interesting thing about the digital music world now is first of all, the long tail, you know, music, long forgotten, artist careers suddenly revived. The second actually interesting thing, which is something you've been quite vocal about recently, is people forget that streaming has led to an explosion in creativity there are a lot more artists album songs being put out there because it's much easier than you know recording a cd and getting it distributed and that's a great thing and then the counter argument to that so i'm packing a lot into this point stroke question is that there are a lot of artists who are really annoyed because they they get paid 0.0001 cent per stream or whatever so Let's just unpack that. Long tail, good thing. I'm a long forgotten artist. Suddenly I've got a career back, potentially. Creativity, good thing. Artists who probably wouldn't see any opportunity to get their music out to the public suddenly have streaming services. Bad thing, they get paid very badly. Right. Uh, Let me break into this one by uh, quoting a, a dear
1: friend of mine, Ed Newton Rex, who sold his company to TikTok Bike Dance and has been a pioneer in AI music and a great contender for a Vasey View podcast as well, a wonderful character, a brilliant public speaker. But I went for a socially safe distance walk and talk with him recently. And his first words were, Will, I'm so busy putting songs on the streaming services, I've forgotten to join the PRS. (laughs) <laughs> let's just break that down. He's so busy releasing music, he's forgotten to join the organization where he registers his copyright for that music. And that, that is a great way of thinking about the side of the times that we're in. So let's just work through it. I, I, we're, we're talking in a morning, and I think talking statistics would send most of your listeners to sleep. But I do want to tackle one statistical anomaly here, which is when you have an explosion in supply as a result of the barriers to entry collapsing. It's very hard to talk about long-tail statistics coherently. People conflate absolute values with percentages. One very simple example, and then we are done and dusted. When people talk about the top 1%, what are they talking about? Isn't it terrible that the top 1% scoops the pot, that the top 1% gets all of the wealth, that the top 1% owns 95% of the market? Fine if the population today is the same as it was back then when it could have been 20%. Not fine when you've gone from a music business, which in 1984 released 6,000 albums, to a music business today, which is releasing that level of content every single day. I mean, I published my Financial Times piece, which said 55,000. Daniel Eck 24 hours later, said 60,000. And I'm pretty sure the number is considerably higher than that now. So we're seeing a year's worth of content in the 80s coming out every day. That
0: is amazing. So the 1% is so much bigger.
1: Yeah, so if we imagine that classic long-tail chart that Chris Anderson drew back in 2004, and we think about the horizontal x-axis in that chart, it's expanded beyond any recognition. Now, this is the only statistical point I want to get across to your listeners, which is that 1% today contains far more choice than existed pre-digitization. So we just have to be very careful when we talk about the top 1% in aghast and shock and this is wrong, Versus a realisation that the inventory, the the population in that 1% is far bigger choice, far more diversity than we've ever seen in the past. And that's a tricky thing. And in, I think in the book I try and give, I think I quote President Harry Truman, which says, find me an economist who's only got one arm. Because we always say on one hand this, on the other hand that. <laughs> and if you debate the long tail, you really need two hands. But on one hand, we've got incredible concentration around the wealth of the top 1%. On the other hand, that 1% has got far more choice than ever existed than in cultural history. So, find me an economist with one arm to explain what we're trying to get across here and get somewhere.
0: Right, I've worked out during this podcast, which is fascinating, that it's a podcast in three parts. So, we've done a lot on the music industry. Now, obviously, I want to plug your book as a whole, Tarzan Economics. Now, the title Tarzan Economics is brilliant because it explains in two words. What I will now take 100 to explain, which is basically how you go from one, what is it, a vine? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you swing through the jungle of business and grab onto the other vine. So it's when do you let go of your old model and grab hold of the new model? And the point is the reason that we're talking to Will Page as the author from Spotify is that's what the music industry had to do. And you've drawn from that amazing lessons for what any business person listening to this podcast will be thinking how do I pivot my business and as you said I think at the beginning the pandemic has absolutely forced this choice on so many people so talk us through I'm hanging onto my vine I'm terrified about making that leap. Well first thing about the word Tarzan and vines
1: is that Scots do their homework before they come up with book titles the point being the author of Tarzan uh, died 70 years ago which means he's now public domain so I did my homework He's, well done. <laughs> I can't get sued for this one. But yeah, so the Tarzan Economics, the term dates back to a wonderful technologist called Jim Griffin, who can take credit for releasing the first ever digital song on the internet, Aerosmith, in 19, 1995, I believe.
0: Oh, that's a good one. That's, when we get down the pub, that'll be part of the pub quiz. Excellent.
1: Well, I first heard the expression in a pub in Norway. Uh, <laughs> I remember him standing at the bar in Norway telling me about Tarzan Economics, and he said, we hold on to this old vine, which keeps us off the jungle floor, but we know that vine is dying. And we're reluctant to reach out and grab the new vine through a fear of the unknown. Back to the music industry just briefly, and then we can kick it around other professions, but music industry spent 10 years holding on to the ownership vine. CDs will pay our bills, downloads will keep us off the jungle floor. So 10 years holding on to the old vine before we let go of that and reached out to the new vine in hope and prayer that it was going to take us forward. And that gamble cooled off. Now, when you step back and think about that first to suffer, first to recover journey of music, I don't have enough fingers and toes to count the number of professions that can apply this. But if I can just give you two very quickly, one that I really believe strongly in, and I'd like to credit the author Richard Susskind, another fellow, Scott, and his work on digital lawyers and the future of the legal profession. I think the legal profession is a great one. We all need lawyers. We all need trust. And... If you look at legal profession, we all need this thing, the paper that I'm holding just now, the obsession with paper. But what the digital legal profession is experiencing is their own Napster moment. There are AI contracts being signed today, this month. I know of tech companies in Silicon Valley that are planning to scale without a legal department. That's extreme end. But just at the very simple end, if you look at a legal department in an organizational chart and you see the words assistant of assistant, that's fat that technology can trim. And that's the rising river of digitization gathering around your feet right there. It will start with the assistant of assistant and an org chart. And once it's in, it will keep on working, just like we saw in music. Digitization is a river. It doesn't determine who it drowns. It's just that music came first. And I think lawyers are a big, big contender for a huge scale disruption over the years. They really have to catch up on this. They cannot hold on to that old vine in perpetuity, thinking it's going to keep you off that jungle floor. At some point, you've got to learn how to stare into the darkness and swing. The second profession was yours, public service. I think government is ripe for TARS and economics as well. And I think you've seen the pandemic accelerate change, accelerate the process of science, accelerate the process of collaboration. And there is so much to be said for how government needs to adapt to technology. I think the biggest one is just how you measure what's around us. Uh, There's a chapter in my book called Judging the State We're In, heavily inspired by the, the wonderful economist Diane Coyle. But a simple you know snapshot of that is what matters most is what's being measured least. Uh, to paraphrase Robert Solow, um, the digital economy is everywhere except in government statistics. And I really worry about that disconnect between reality and statistics.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely true. I mean, it, it is staggering, the amount of kind of tech investment going on in the UK and how technology is changing our lives and the only thing that the government statistics will measure will be the change in price of my iphone probably uh nothing to do with productivity measures are completely insane because they're based on the economics of god 100 years ago maybe
1: well i mean the golden rule of doing a good podcast is avoid discussions about statistics but i want to lean into (laughs) one very high level observation by none other than hal varian a mentor to my work at a bank of england seminar and you can Watch this on YouTube, where he basically says the contribution of the smartphone to American GDP is pretty much zero. Because of the rules of accounting, all the value added is transferred to Korea or Taiwan or Asia where manufacturing takes place. That's crazy. That quarter of a billion Americans are carrying around with them, you know, computing power in their pocket that NASA didn't have in the 60s. And the contribution to the economy is nothing. I think Apple's economic classification is the same as Radio Shack in America. It, What matters most is being measured least. And I I just think we have a a real dilemma on our hands in terms of if we come out of the pandemic, what sort of recovery are we measuring? What sort of economy are we measuring in the first place? There's fundamental questions we cannot be like an ostrich here and just ignore and hope it's going to go away in next quarter's GDP estimates.
0: Well, I think uh, I might have to have Diane Coyle on the old uh... Podcast. What are the lessons? So I'm I'm a CEO. There are two will pages that I'm going to create in the next 10 minutes. The first is, you know, chief executive of bigfatplc.com. I and you you'd be brought in by a terrified board that doesn't know how to pivot to digital. So, you know, we've talked about a a kind of a lot of the outcomes, you know, how to measure stuff and and so on. But what are the changes you would make? I mean, what would you do? What would be your first hundred days as the chief executive? What are the the eight lessons, as it were? In your book I think I think the overarching lesson that I've learned in business
1: is to spot turkeys voting for Christmas. You see this in government. You see this in commercial life. You see it in individuals, where the reluctance to let go of the old vine is reason that is a fear that the old
0: vine is going to let go of you. So your law, you're you're the head of a law firm. You would now be just embracing. You'd be hoovering up all the available technology you could get. You wouldn't be saying how do I hold, how do I make sure I've still got a fifteen hundred person law firm. I would just be saying bring in the technology. And then we'll see what happens.
1: One hundred percent, and it, I think the first mover advantage has to tell you something. So music was moved first; that's why it matters. And you can see just how far behind the old line now appears, given where music has got to today. Where people of all generations across all continents now—you've just seen Spotify launch, I think, at eighty new markets—are beginning to adopt streaming as the facto way of getting to music. So in a legal profession, I I would argue that the the company that moves first will be able to hire that talent, to be able to advance that talent, to be able to advance those technologies and offer better services for less costs, for less hassle costs. Remember what productivity is. More from the same, the same from less, or more from less. That's productivity in my book. And you have to look at technologies, can I optimize for efficiency with technology as opposed to assistance or assistance of assistance in a legal department handling paperwork? What does DocuSign do to the need for paper? If I was in a newspaper profession, maybe flip it over to a media profession, You yeah. know, the first question I asked is, why do we call them newspapers? It's a piece of glass that our thumb presses. That's what news is. It's not newspaper. It's news behind a piece of glass. And there's all sorts of questions there about why are you holding on to the physical distribution model of newspapers?
0: Why haven't newspapers, you know, we've just had this massive row between Facebook and the Australian government. Why haven't they adopted a collective licensing model? I know it's, it's very interesting how
1: newspapers have held on to the old vine and back to Turkey's voting for Christmas. They might have a digital disruption unit inside their newspaper business, but everybody just wants that to go away, just like they want the Internet to go away. But there's so many things in the newspaper model which just jump out at me as bizarre. Like a newspaper, let's take The Guardian, which is a left-leaning political newspaper, might want to distribute copies of its physical newspaper to left-leaning cities like Edinburgh, Brighton, and so on, Manchester. But the distribution model says you have to distribute copies everywhere, including the Outer Hebrides and the West Country. Well, that means sunk and marginal costs are completely out of whack with revenue. That Tarzan vine, that old vine, is withering now because you're attached to this old model. Simon David Miller said this wonderful thing at EMI back around about 2010, where he said the best thing this record label could do is stop selling CDs, even though CDs made up 90% of its business. And I love that comment because he's saying to the business, he's saying to Guy Hans, we acquired EMI at the time, the best thing we could do is stop selling what keeps this business afloat because what keeps this business afloat is what's killing it at the same time. And I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about how that could apply to not just newspapers, but any number of professions where your number one core business is what's actually killing you because you're holding on to it, hoping the future is just going to go away. Back to collectives, I'm fascinated with models such as the athletic for sports journalism.
0: I mean, that's where it's all going. It's a bit like, you know, I remember financial services being disrupted. 20 years ago, and I remember somebody saying to me, the point is we don't have legacy systems. We build our system from scratch and we can out-compete the legacy systems. And I look at the Athletic or Axios.
1: Axios is fantastic as you well. Know,
0: that's where I now get most of my news from, from an email newsletter, because if you were starting, you know, when you started a newspaper in the 18th century, you did it on a printing press, and that's the model we've had for 200 years. If you're starting a newspaper now, you get people to subscribe to an email.
1: Maybe worth just tapping to something else I, I bring out in the book there uh, is the story of Mark Twain. Mark Twain was a very famous writer, famous for the quote of golf is a good walk spoiled, which is a great way to diminish <laughs> a Scottish invention. But he made almost as much money for a patent where he invented a scrapbook. And what the scrapbook did was in response to a deluge, an explosion in the supply of media content, gave you a way of ordering it. That was clever. That was really clever, like he responded to an excess supply by offering a new way to order. Then you look at what Facebook has done with the newsfeed. It's not that dissimilar to what Mark Twain did with the scrapbook, a way to order all this stuff. And that's an interesting way of looking at the debate you mentioned Australia between what tech is doing and what traditional media is doing and trying to work out whether there's a middle ground here and where it can work. The key point for Mark Twain, the key point for the book is with all of this disruption, yes, it's scary. Yes, if you're responsible for 2000 people on your payroll who have got mortgages to pay and families to feed, it is scary working out what happens next. But things like Mark Twain remind us we've been here before. And I really hope the book has that reassurance where I can look
0: back in history and say, We've been here before. We'll be here again. Absolutely. We've been here with the invention of of the printing press. I've made you chief executive of a a law firm. I'd now like to make you prime minister. And I know you want to talk, first of all, you know, you've been very involved in a parliamentary inquiry on the economics of streaming. We're we're recording this in in the UK, like everyone we've been through the pandemic, but we've got our own little special thing called Brexit. But we're also a highly creative nation. One of the reasons that you were able to become a rockonomist, I suspect, is because you live in the UK, where we're famous for our music, our films, uh, our TV. Talk me through Prime Minister Will Page's manifesto for the post-Brexit creative, but in a digital age.
1: <laughs> well, you are right that we're creative. When I first met you, when I was back at the PRS, I remember one step that both yourself and Prime Minister Cameron at the time used a lot was... Britain is just one of only three net exporters of music in the world. There's 208 countries in the world, according to the United Nations, but only three countries are net exporters of music. Bring more money in from overseas than they send out. And let's just test your memory bank there. Can you name the other two countries, Ed? The United States and Sweden. Correct. And then Korea doesn't quite qualify because Korea doesn't send money to Japan. And if you want to understand why Korea doesn't send money to Japan, oh, you need yeah. a little bit of history lesson in World War II politics. But there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, it's Britain, America, and Sweden. Not just that, but Britain was one of three net exporters of television content, the other two being America and. Got me there. The Netherlands. John DeMaul no. and Mol. Oh brother. my God. Brilliant. Also, just on computer games, just worth remembering we're an exporter of computer games. Um, What's happened in Dundee is incredible. Grand Theft Auto, a game about late-night violence in the middle of the streets, came from Dundee. I mean, where'd you get the inspiration? I know. I call it method acting. We are a creative Britain, and we should really stop and take stock of just how creative this country is on every level. Our football league, fantastic example of exports, Now, let me throw a grenade into this discussion, which is a less obvious point, which you, your listeners, your colleagues back in government might not have considered. And I want you to follow this one very closely. The debate about Brexit often hinges on leaving the single market. If you're that car plant firm in Merseyside, you will be panicking about leaving a single market because all the parts you use for making a car come from the single market. Access is key. But the one thing that Britain excels at exporting is creativity and culture. And because of the national treatment of copyright, which essentially states that copyright in Germany sticks to Germany and copyright law in France sticks to France, you know, we each mind our own back gardens. Creative Britain has never had a single market to leave. Isn't that fascinating? The one thing that we excel at exporting has never had a single market to leave. So what does Brexit mean for Creative Britain? something very different for it means to everyone else and i just ask you and your listeners to pause for thought there in terms of what the single market does and doesn't mean for different parts of our economy the one thing that we do a really great job exporting has not had a single market to leave last example i spend a lot of time in spain there's a lot of brits in the south coast of spain whenever a lawyer pushes back on my argument says oh but you can't say that because of this technicality and intellectual property i say why can't all those Brits on the south coast of Spain buy Sky Premiership football packages? Because there's no single market. If there was, they would. They've got time in their hands. They've got disposable income. So they should be, but they don't. And I think that's just a a fascinating way of thinking, taking stock of just how creative Britain is and how creative Britain is going to accommodate Brexit. Are there challenges? Visas? Absolutely. Big ones. They can be resolved. Mm. But the core of it is a business called Intellectual Property, which has national treatment which therefore is a foreign language to the length of that of the single market.
0: Well, thanks so much, Will. I just want to, as my final question, ask you about the future of the podcast. Where's the podcast going to go? Because there's now, I think, uh, you mentioned 60,000 albums or pieces of music published every day. I think there is a new podcast every two seconds.
1: Two, 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 two new podcasts every minute. That's where we're at.
0: <laughs> What's going to happen with the
1: podcast? And by the way, that's new podcast, not series or episodes. That's a brand new podcast. Two every minute. That's the current rate we've got. Which reminds me of maybe <laughs> childbirth rates. But still, what is going one hundred podcasts were born during our podcast? <laughs> it's bonkers. I, I use the term crapshoot, which I learned from American colleagues, to describe podcasts. And I think of William Goldman, the famous director. Where he said, "Nobody knows anything." Whenever you discuss podcasts, you know nobody knows anything and if anyone proclaims to be an expert on podcasts then you know they're lying because nobody knows anything Uh, i'll give one very big hat tip to james cridland a former brit who's moved to australia he has the pod news newsletter which is free and if people listening do want to try and know something about podcasts that's the best source of objective impartial evidence so pod news is definitely worth looking at so a few things on podcasts firstly If podcasts win, who loses? The second chapter of my book called Paying Attention looks at the contestability of attention. That is, if somebody wins, someone else has to lose. If I binge watch Narcos on Netflix for five times 10 hours, that's 50 hours that nobody else gets to consume. So if podcasts are winning, I think books will lose. Back to means to an end. Ed Vasey might write a book which has got 350 pages, but personally, you know, you're a personable guy. I'd rather that got into my head through my ears as opposed to my eyes. I can go jogging and listen to Ed Vasey's rambles. Preferable. Why should I buy the book when I can listen to the podcast? So I think there's contestability issues with podcasts. If they win, I think books will lose. I think, secondly, the podcast market lacks a business model. I use in the last chapter of the book this expression of designing a plane while we're in flight. Nobody quite knows how this is supposed to work. Ad-free podcasts, is that really how it's supposed to be? Or is the purpose of podcasts to use adverts to promote stories? No one quite knows. RSS feed or direct links, nobody quite knows. So we are designing a plane whilst we're in flight. And you'll see, I think you'll actually see in April, some huge developments in the podcast space by some of the biggest providers. Uh, which will change the path of where podcasts are going the third thing about podcasts is like editorial I mean you just mentioned we're going to wrap this one up and it's been a, a great conversation but uh, one thing that podcasters lack is editors to reduce the length of podcasts they're all too long so I have this running joke that I want to use at the Edinburgh Festival which hopefully will run again in stand-up comedy this year in August which is what's the best way to keep a secret Answer, put it in the
0: second half of a podcast. Or make a speech in the House of Commons. Was the last... <laughs> It's true. I mean, we've spoken for almost an hour. I try and keep these podcasts kind of to 30 to 45 minutes. I agree with you. I mean, I think, ironically, I mean, we do have a wonderful editor called Joel who um, does edit our podcast. And you're right. And, and, and the, the key about a podcast is obviously, you know, where, where and how you listen to it, which is, you know, on your way to work in the old days when we used to go to work. Uh, or working out in the gym or whatever and it is also true you know the amount of people I know I, I happen for bizarre reasons to be reading a lot at the moment most of my contemporaries now will listen to an audiobook while they go running for about an hour and that's that's where they get there and for them it's great they love it oh I've just read this great book they will say and actually they haven't so what they've listened to it over five hours during the week when they've been running.
1: Tying the whole conversation together, we go back to the very start of understanding how your content is being consumed, not sold. Understanding the who, the where, the why, the what platform that song was streamed on as opposed to the weight of palette of CDs that you used to sell for more money. And you think about attention spans, which we're discussing at the end of this podcast. I think in the future, you're gonna see media creatives trying to fit available attention slots. We have a wealth of distractions and a poverty of attention. That's our problem. Supply exceeds demand. How do you get into that slot? How can I understand what the average commute time of an average person is in a particular part of the country and fit that slot with content to suit it? Um, If you want a, a last call here, an example of contrarian thinking, the company Quibi, set up by Jeff Katzenberg, is being mocked because it crashed and burned. But the thinking behind Quibi, I think, is to be highly respected. How can we fit content into available slots? How can technology in 2021 develop solutions to make that sure that content suits my spot So Ed Vasey's got a run which lasts. How long do you run for Ed? Is an average run for you 48 minutes or 4.8 minutes? So, sort of journey. <laughs> but if it, if it is under five minutes just over an
0: hour that. just over an hour what a normal person would take 50 minutes <laughs> over an
1: hour. all right so if ed is running jogging fast walking for just over an hour how can i make sure that this content's delivered to fill that available slot and i think that's that's the future of media start with attention that's the first fork in the road and take it from there and it's get a to-
0: brilliant it's a brilliant point i mean i love all this kind of you know why hasn't strava set up a streaming service for example you know i I love Strava. I record all my runs on Strava because I can see my friends run. It gives me motivation. And then I fiddle about with Apple Music to get the music for my run when Strava should be doing that. It's a whole new conversation. Will, that was fantastic. This is what I love about uh, doing podcasts like this is to have kind of stimulating conversations, which do, to a certain extent, and that's my fault, uh, wander in certain different directions. But this is brilliant. I, I can't recommend enough. As I say, you sent me Tiles and Economics about two months ago. I read it effectively in one sitting. It's full of brilliant anecdotes, really thought-provoking stuff. And Thank it you. is, you know, it's that terrible old cliche, but every chief executive uh, or strategist at a company should, should have a good read of this in their bath or listen to it while they're jogging or whatever it is in terms of the attention economy. Thanks so much, Will. Honour to be here. Thank you very much, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.